tongue, bloodsucker. You're gonna have to do your own dirty work now. Do you hear me? Do you? Kirk. Kirk, you're still alive, my old friend. Still old friend. You've managed to kill just about everyone else, but like a poor marksman, you keep missing the target. Perhaps I no longer need to try. You've got Genesis, but you don't have me. You are going to kill me, Khan. You're going to have to come down here. You're going to have to come down here. I've done far worse than kill you. I've hurt you. And I wish to go on hurting you. I shall leave you as you left me. As you left her. My room for If your life had a face, I would punch it. Yeah. Wait, what? Let me ask you something. Why would a review make the point of saying someone's not a genius? Do you think I'm especially not a genius? Veronica, why are you pulling my dick? Suck my fat one, you cheap dime store hood. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of The Greatest Moments in the History of Forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 320, Star Trek II, Wrath of Khan. And this is listener request number 41, courtesy of Ron. Yeah, thanks, Ron. Ron Khan. Khan Ron. I found myself enjoying this version of Kirk, sort of like a last picture show, Sam the Lion, getting old. (laughs) That's what's ridiculous. Yeah. Who would have thought in 1982 there would have been a midlife crisis Shatner project and he would go on to continue being... Do 15 more of these movies. Captain Kirk for a long, at least another 10, 12 years. I don't know when they fully switched to the next generation movies, but But somewhere in there. But this movie does have that feel like they were trying to build in a passing of the torch. It does sort of feel like... These yeah. characters are supposed to Well, that to be was probably like- just how they perceived it. Because, again, and this ties in with what we were talking about before we started recording, where there was no precedent for this. This was a show that had aired 15 years oh, earlier. Yeah. So they're like, do people think he's too old? William Shatner's a middle-aged man. Maybe he's too old to do this. They, they probably just didn't know. Right. Like, how is this going to work? Meanwhile, if this was happening now, he would have just been James T. Kirk for at least 10 years before they started to do that. Because oh, yeah. the age 
perception is way different. Absolutely. Now. He's younger in this movie than probably people we consider to be actors Young. in their action hero <laughs> prime, like right. Chris Pratt or something. Yeah. But we just think of these things as completely different now. All right. Yeah. Well, Ron, we're doing what we can. <laughs> <laughs> just put it that way. Ron. Gave us a request for any of the first few Star Trek films, I believe. I don't know if his exact request, but it was one through four, maybe something like that. We went with two, often considered the best of the bunch. Generally so, yeah. But And this is something we'll get to momentarily more in detail, but Matt and myself don't really have any experience with any Star Trek stuff. So this was a huge undertaking in a sense. I'll tell you this, I had never seen anything Star Trek movie-wise until J.J. Abrams' first Star Trek movie. Me too. But you actually have seen more Star Trek stuff than me leading into this episode, yeah. for sure. I, I had did... seen nothing other than the first two J.J. Uh-huh. Abrams movies. Nothing else at all, right. period. Yes. And so I did make an attempt to do a little bit of a Star Trek run in my life following the J.J. Abrams stuff. Never quite got the full... Didn't you say you watched Deep Space Nine or something? Oh, well, that I saw when I was like a kid, and it was right, on but, TV. I mean, I'm saying I yeah. saw nothing. Okay, okay. I've seen no episodes of oh, any of this wow, stuff. wow, okay, okay. I thought you were just talking about like this original cast No, stuff. nothing. No okay. Star Trek-related uh, so, material yeah. at so, all. So, I mean, on TV, I saw some Next Generation stuff. I do think I saw some of the Next Generation movies. No, I never saw any of that. Yeah. I don't know. So, we're going to do what we can. I picked... Wrath of Khan out of the group because that's the one with the biggest rep. That's the one people seem to like the most. I did end up enjoying this film a lot, but as part of the preparation, I did watch some other stuff. I think we'll have maybe a few comments about the 1979 original motion picture. Uh (laughs) Quite an adventure there. Right. But before we get into all things Star Trek, we might as well run through the housekeeping stuff since we didn't do it at the top of the Social Network Revisited episode. So where we're at with these listener requests, right now I think it's officially time to say it. We're putting the word out there for all of you listening who are maybe on the fence still. The bad news is Mm. if you purchase a listener request from us right now or moving forward, we're talking post greatest October for when you would hear it. I know that sounds crazy, but I showed Matt the schedule. We're we have up. two to three every month, basically. That's how we're maxing out with it, except for June. Two to three. we're doing three one trashy summer. In a month. That's most of our month. Right. So yeah. I think it's fine. I'm just letting people know that if they want to invest the money, they're going to have to wait a little bit. It's fine if you want to wait, too. We're keeping the prices the same for the rest of the calendar year. So if you want to hold off for now, that's fine, too. It would actually make our lives easier where I don't feel pressure to cram it into the schedule somewhere. So whatever you want to do is fine. But $50 for a movie up to two hours and 10 minutes, $75 for a movie up to three hours. We're looking at November. We're pretty much filled now. That's how it is. Other than that, follow the show on Twitter at GreatestPod. And that is our email address as well, GreatestPod at gmail.com greatestpod at gmail.com questions comments concerns we are planning on reading emails as long as we get them on every episode so keep sending them in i know we have a few in the backlog right now but keep Mm. them coming we will get to them one at a time thanks so much yeah always good to hear from the listeners it's a great place to request a free sticker which we will send to you once we get your address 
It's a good place to negotiate those listener requests. It's a good place to just ask anything that might be on your mind, either about the subjects we cover or about ourselves or whatever. Please make sure you're subscribed to the program on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, etc. Please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And finally, find us on Letterboxd, Zach1983, Z-A-C-H-1983, and Matt Crosby, M-A-T-T-C-R-O-S-B-Y, on there, where we log everything we watch. It's a pretty carefree and casual social network for movie lovers. You can rate and review things Leave you're watching. Leave a comment. Yeah. There's some things I would improve if I was in charge of Letterboxd. Sure. I would say one thing you need to do is be able to like highlight the people that you care about the most. That way, when you log in, you yeah. definitely see what they've watched recently. Right. It's really easy to get lost if yeah. you have a lot of people you follow. Definitely. I like mean, If you log way... something at 8, 8 say yeah. you log at 8 p.m., and I follow 700 people, by 8.15, it's probably not going to be gone out of that main I know. thing. Then I'd have to like look up people specifically. You know, whatever. Well, the only it's way... I, I, yeah, I always have to like look at somebody who liked one of my reviews or something and then get to their profile that way. That's yeah. like the quickest way for me to get there. I know. I think there's some things they could improve upon. I do like how they try to limit the interaction because even though that is frustrating sometimes, I do think it prevents a lot of the toxicity from creeping in, which I know yeah. they, they probably don't want. Of all social media, it is a fairly safe space. Yeah, I don't think they want 40-year-old guys like us messaging 20 year old girls and being like oh i saw what movie you logged <laughs> you know want to suck my dick well <laughs> you know whatever or make fun of them or or neg them <laughs> whatever people yeah, do yeah. with movies it's definitely ripe for that kind of behavior so they try to limit potential toxic yeah. situations but it can be frustrating because there's some things that could be done better or smoother probably definitely but whatever if you're interested in following us and you are finding us from this show, then let us know in some way, either through a comment or a tweet or something, and we can make sure we follow you back on Letterboxd. So let's get into Star Trek II Wrath of Khan 1982, directed by Nicholas Meyer, screenplay by Jack B. Sowards, story by Harv Bennett and Sowards. Meyer and Samuel A. Peoples also did some uncredited work. Yeah. On the script. Another one that seems like it took a while to get to like what the story was going to be. Based on Star Trek by Gene Roddenberry. Gene was the creator of the original show and was heavily involved in the 1979 original motion picture, but was kicked to the curb for this film, which we'll get into more in a moment. This film had just a $12 million budget, and at the box office, it brought in $97 million, so it was a pretty big hit. Yeah. It did not do as well number-wise as the first film, but since the budget was so much lower and they spent way less on marketing and advertising. Better margins. Yeah. It was more successful in that sense. If you have not seen Star Trek II Wrath of Khan, you can check it out for free on HBO Max, I believe. Yeah, that's where I watched it. Most, if not all, of the Star Trek films are on there, at least of this original run. Right. I, myself, picked up the first three films on 4K specifically for you, Ron. How about that? 
Now, not number four. Though? I don't want to. No, I just stopped at three. Although now I kind of wish I would have just bought two, three, and four rather yeah, than yeah. one, two, and three. But whatever. Ron, don't feel weird though. This is not the first time, or probably the last time, that I've just straight up bought something because a listener requested it. I know with three o'clock high, Eddie oh, yeah. Cruisers. It's a journey. I want to point out that it is cool that a lot of our listeners have requested things that we haven't seen. Yep. That's kind of fun in a weird way. Those two that I just mentioned, 3 O'Clock High, Eddie and the Cruisers, but also, even though I owned it, I hadn't seen whatever happened to Baby Jane yet, for example. Right. We both talked about how we hadn't seen Akira yet. It's been a recurring thing. I I think it's been fun to inject a few of those every now and again into the mix. By the way, we use the uh, proceeds for the paid listener request to just buy the movies that we're doing for the <laughs> no, episode. No, <laughs> we don't, but not that it would have been bad. Yeah. That's not a bad idea, but no, that's not what happened. <laughs> One day we'll we'll get new microphones. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I thought the new 4K editions, I think they were already on 4K, but I don't know if they were individual releases yet. Yeah. I bought the first three. I didn't get really far into the third one, but I did think that they looked incredible. You were saying you kind of liked the effects more in the first one, and I definitely think there was a difference because of the budget, but there was something charming about some of that nebula stuff and like the purple space. I thought it kind of looked cool in this movie, too, even though you could tell it was low budge. For sure. I still thought it was kind of fun. Well, because I had seen this one before, and I remembered it pretty clearly. So you have a lot more Star Trek experience than me. You said you saw this before. Yes, I haven't seen any of this shit. Right. So I had watched this one before, but I hadn't watched one. And I didn't watch one again. But I watched parts of one. And I was actually surprised when I put it on. I was like, wow, this looks like a lot better than I was expecting it to. Like, I thought yeah. one looked pretty good in comparison. Not that this looks horrible, but I, it just looked like a noticeable uptick in quality with the There seems to be almost like a specific grimy cinematography type choice to this movie. Where yeah. it's darker at times. Like, literally darker and grittier. Definitely. And there's more of, like, a... What is the word I'm thinking of? Like, a a grittier quality to the film. Yeah. Which is... Grainier? Yeah, grainier. Yeah. It's definitely different from the 79 For sure. film. But, yeah, I guess as far as our personal experience with all things Star Trek, I saw the 2009 J.J. Abrams film, and I saw the sequel. I liked them both. Yep. I didn't really like them enough to carry on to the third one, which didn't get as good of reviews. I did see the third one, and I did not like it. You probably told me that, and other people. It yeah. just didn't seem like it was as good. And by that point, I think I had started to lose interest, and I was now like, fine I with it. Now, I did like the J.J. Abrams. It caught me by surprise how much I liked it. And um, Me too, because I had zero experience with Star yeah. Trek, so I didn't know what to think. And I thought the cast was fun. I thought Chris Pine was really good. I was pretty in when the second one into darkness was coming out but that ultimately just felt like they were going for something big that didn't quite land but i enjoyed that whole cast so you didn't like the second one as much yeah i i can't remember really so it seems like star trek 2 wrath of khan from 1982 was a huge influence on both of the first two Absolutely. J.J. Abrams Star Trek films. And in that jumped out ways. to me on this viewing, how they take stuff from from this for both of those. In preparation for this episode, I did watch the 1979 original motion picture, and I did watch the episode of the original series that this film actually is a sequel to, and we'll get more than that in a second. 
But other than that, and the J.J. Abrams stuff, mm-hmm. I'd seen none of it, to the point where when I was watching the 1979 film, I told you that when I saw Klingons for the first time, oh yeah, my head immediately was like, oh, that looks like that guy from that one right. thing. And then I was like, oh, I, in my head, I was thinking of The Next Generation, which I'd probably seen commercials for. Yeah, Worf. Yeah. Yeah. But I didn't even know his name, and I, it didn't even right. immediately occur to me that that was also a Star Trek. No, I was I like, know. oh, they look like that guy from that thing. I, and I was like, oh, yeah, that is Star Trek, too. I did have that same moment for Star Trek Into Darkness, because I think Klingons are briefly in that. And I was like, oh, that yeah. one guy is one of the, okay. So I just want to give Ron and anyone else listening who may be a Star Trek oh, yeah. person a little bit of an indication of where it's we're coming us. from. Yeah. And I think this is as good as time as any to let the Star Trek fans out there know that this is going to be embarrassing. We don't know anything about this. A big part of what we try to do in these episodes is contextualize what we're talking about. That is way too much work, even for a non-listener request. Right. We're going to do the best we can, but there's only so much. We can't like learn a lifetime about Star Trek yeah. and then jump into this stuff. So we're going to be wrong about some things or whatever. But I will say this, though. Even watching like some of Star Trek The Motion Picture and then watching this, I definitely got why this resonated with people more. I think both the fans and beyond. Just as you so... mean two over one? Yeah, right, Wrath okay. of Khan over the yeah. first one. There's so much more of the character development stuff. Like, there's so much going on with these characters. Yeah, it, there's just, like, a, a very clear, distinct, and to-the-point story, but also done in a way that allows the characters to shine a little bit more right. as far as their personality, as far as, like, what's going to happen in terms of decision-making, conversations. The first one is, like, very... The pace is just not like movies are. Yeah, <laughs> like, right. That's the easiest thing I could say is the pace is just not how movies are. Mm-hmm. And so for me, a total outsider firing up the original motion picture, you have 10 minutes of just flying through space and stars with music. That's how it starts to the point where I was fast forwarding oh, yeah. because I was confused <laughs> thinking the disc was. Is a, this the end credits? I thought it was yeah. a, like a misprint right. disc where it was just stars and there wasn't even going to be a movie. <laughs> I'm like, well, what is happening? Because it wasn't credits, even. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was nothing. So that goes on forever. Then the movie starts, and within the first five to ten minutes, you have Kirk being flown up to the USS Enterprise, which then takes another 10 to 15 minutes where he does not talk to his friend, who I believe is either McCoy or Scotty. I don't remember which one is with him on that thing, but... They don't talk. It just cuts to more orchestral music as it's a montage of them going to the USS Enterprise, which, again, I do get because there's no precedence for this. So to them, they were probably thinking, okay, this has never happened. We don't have any other shows that have done shit like this. Nothing like this exists in terms of revitalizing something that was once popular and bringing them back in a movie form. So how dramatic and cool is it going to be to see the Enterprise for the first time? See, but the thing is, they oversold it a little bit. Uh-huh. It wasn't 15 minutes of orchestral buildup cool. It was, yeah, this is a cool moment, but let's get on with the fucking story. The movie has started. We could have trimmed this voyage to the Enterprise a bit. So I was telling my friend, who I was sort of using as a resource for all things Star Trek, because I don't know anything about anything, mm-hmm. about this experience, and at various points, I'm taking breaks, I'm getting a pizza, whatever's going on. The first time I stopped it, 
was I think when a pizza was arriving or something, and I was thinking, okay, like nine minutes has gone by because nothing's happened. And when I hit pause, we were 40 minutes into this movie, <laughs> and nothing had happened yet. The pace of the original film is insane. So I knew pretty quickly that I made the right call as far as Ron's request as to which one to go for because the first one I immediately was ruling out. And obviously we're yeah. not going to go beyond two for a listener request unless sure. we were like Star Trek diehards and we were like, you know what, The Voyage Home, Star Trek That's 4. That's the one. That's yeah. the one. So I went with the one that most yeah. people consider the best and in some ways the most popular even though it didn't make quite as much money. Plus reference in that Seinfeld episode. Hell of a yeah, thing when they, Spock died. They reference this one and Search for Spock. Sure. Yeah, this movie had a lower box office, but the motion picture had a way higher budget, plus middling reviews. It was not really well-reviewed. So then it's in that weird gray area where it technically did more than good enough for a sequel. It was one of the highest-grossing films of 1979, but they were going to have to completely do it differently in order to keep going because yeah. it just wasn't sustainable after the the release of the motion picture executive producer gene ronberry did write his own sequel in his plot the crew of the enterprise travel back in time to set right a corrupted timeline after klingons used the guardian of forever to prevent the assassination of jfk huh this was rejected by paramount executives who blamed the tepid reception and costs of the first film on its plotting pace and the constant rewrites Roddenberry demanded. As a consequence, Roddenberry was removed from the production and, according to Shatner, kicked upstairs to the ceremonial position of executive consultant, which I noticed he still is on at least the third film. So he was like, well, I'll keep cashing these checks. Yeah, listen, even though if I'm getting a payday out of it, I'm fine with being upstairs. After the lackluster critical response to the first film... Roddenberry was forced out of the sequel's production. Executive producer Harv Bennett wrote the film's original outline with Jack B. Swords, developing it into a full script. Meyer completed its final script in 12 days without accepting a writing credit. Meyer's approach evoked the swashbuckling atmosphere of the original series, a theme reinforced by James Horner's musical score. I did notice that, and this is probably old hat to people who've watched Star Trek a million times, but... Horner's score here was reminding me a lot of Prometheus's score. Oh, yeah. Except when it gets to that like pivotal note, it goes a different way or whatever, <laughs> like dun-dun-dun or whatever. Yeah. But I definitely thought now, in retrospect, I was like, I, th- I think the Prometheus score definitely was influenced by this. It could be, yeah. Leonard Nimoy had not intended to have a role in the sequel, but was enticed back on the promise that his character would be given a dramatic death scene Negative test audience reaction to Spock's death led to significant revisions of the ending over Meyer's objections. The production team used various cost-cutting techniques to keep within budget, including utilizing miniature models from past projects Mm. and reusing sets, effects footage, and costumes from the first film. The film was the first feature film to contain a sequence created entirely with computer graphics, which we will get to later. Yeah, just reading a little bit about this, it does seem like these movies were almost always barely happening. Oh, yeah. And the cast, it's like, was unclear. It's people always having reservations about continuing in these roles. Well, they weren't Shatner. really accustomed to the idea of franchises and yeah. franchise IP. So, like, even when they signed everyone up for the first film, they didn't really sign them up to multi-picture deals. Right. So it was always a battle to get Nimoy and George Takei and other people 
reinvested in it, especially since a lot of it does seem like a monument just to William Shatner and how great he is because the other people definitely have very limited supporting roles in some of the films. So basically with Meyer is he ends up not being on three because he's pissed about the changes they made to two. Meyer comes back later and uses his unused ideas for the film that's called The Other Country. <laughs> that, that can't be the title. <laughs> it, it's like the fifth one. It's yeah, the yeah. one after right. The Voyage Home. I haven't seen any of these movies, so obviously I'm, I'm going to make some mistakes here. The Other Country. <laughs> it's yeah. something about like a different country or some shit. Look up what the uh, fifth yeah, one's yeah. called. It's the one that Kim Cattrall's in, because that's yeah, what we yeah. wanted for Savick in the first place. It's not like The Voyage Home? Is that four? That's four. Yeah. It's the next one. The Final Frontier, this says. All right, look up six, then. There's something with country in one of them. The Undiscovered Country. There you go. Is that six? Yeah. The film functions as more of a sequel to the classic episode of the original series called Space Seed, the 22nd episode of the first season, which aired originally on February 16th, 1967, than it does the first film. I do think this is a cool idea, and it actually kind of had me thinking of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood when they're having the whole scene with Al Pacino talking about these guys coming in to do like one guest spot appearance on a show and be the heavy or whatever. Right. And it's like really a cool idea that somebody was like, let's bring this character back and base a movie around them. Yeah. You would think that this would be something that would have occurred to them earlier, but I guess they just, again, this is some something that was unprecedented. Let's make a movie from a popular TV show. Yeah. Where stuff like that wasn't super common yet. So how do we do that? They tried to come up with something new with the first film. It doesn't really go well. So then, all right, well, what's our idea to keep this going? Well, I don't know. It seems like kind of a no-brainer to take a popular episode of the show and just use that. And that's what they did. And this is the first time a feature film was made as a sequel to a specific television series episode. And I guess for the sake of trying to contextualize what we'll be talking about with this movie, I will try to get through this plot of Space Seed pretty quickly. So please bear with me. But I think this is important because (laughs) it is kind of funny that in Wrath of Khan, they don't really explain that much. So if you hadn't seen this episode, you're kind of like... What is the connection between I Khan and these people? Credit for doing that, though. Just no, like, I do, too. Yeah. It's like, why waste the time? Yeah. You need to see this episode for this to fully click. I think you can still appreciate it without it. You can kind of get it, right. but if you're actually watching it, seeing it helps. It's weird if you're watching it yeah, as a standalone thing because, oh, there's clearly a history here, but I don't know what it is. Right, yeah. So this is the story of Space Seed from 1967, and that's what Wrath of Khan is a sequel to. The USS Enterprise finds the SS Botany Bay adrift in space, a landing party consisting of Captain Kirk, Dr. Leonard McCoy, Chief Engineer Montgomery Scott, and Historian Lieutenant Marla McGivers beams over to the derelict. The landing party finds a cargo of dozens of humans still alive in suspended animation after nearly 200 years, which... I thought it was kind of cool when watching that episode because suspended animation gets used in Alien and tons of other space yeah. stuff. And in 1967, we hadn't even been to the moon yet. So it's sort of forward thinking 
science fiction, even though that isn't something we actually do yet in the year 2023, but it was kind of setting the precedent of sure. like how this would work in the future for space travel. McEvers identifies the group's leader who begins to revive and is taken back to Enterprise for medical examination. Kirk has Botany Bay taken in tow by a tractor beam, and Enterprise sets course for Starbase 12. In Sick Bay, the group's leader awakens and introduces himself as Khan. McGivers marvels over Khan, a living relic from the 20th century, her field of interest. There's like a animal magnetism. I get it. McGivers is sort of like a swinging lady of the 60s. Absolutely. Even though it's not actually set during the 60s. Well, but listen, when you get a look at that chest on her, Khan. What, her chest? No, on Khan. Come on. I don't know if his chest was like as prominent in the show. Yeah, I probably can't not. No. First officer Spock discovers that their guest is actually Khan, Nooney, and Singh, who, along with his people, are products of 20th century selective breeding designed to create perfect humans. The genetic superhumans instead become tyrants and conquered more than a third of the planet during the eugenics wars of the 1990s. Mm. I think we missed those. That's right. Khan is placed under guard in quarters. McGivers is sent to brief him on current events, taking advantage of McGivers' attraction towards him. Khan tells her he means to rule mankind again and needs her help to take over Enterprise. Reluctantly, she agrees, and Khan revives the rest of his people and take control of Enterprise. Khan throws Kirk into a decompression chamber and threatens to slowly suffocate him unless Enterprise's command crew agree to follow him. Having a change of heart, McGivers frees Kirk from the chamber. Kirk and Spock vent anesthetic gas throughout the entire ship to disable Khan and his people. Khan escapes the gas and goes to engineering where he attempts to destroy Enterprise, but Kirk confronts him. Kirk knocks Khan unconscious in the resulting fight. For those of you who are like me and have mm-hmm. zero experience with the original series, just a ludicrous display of <laughs> stunt double usage here. Oh, yeah. Which I know is part of the fun with Star Trek. It's kinda of, I'm not like the first person to point that out, obviously. It's sort of a recurring gag, but wow. I was Taken aback. Hot Dog the Movie-esque. You would Worse. <laughs> because I was shocked at some of the parts that Shatner and Montalban couldn't do themselves. Yeah. They like couldn't even throw punches, apparently. I know. It's not like these fight scenes were like these insanely choreographed, the lightsaber well, even battles. Even the part where he would like fly against the wall, I was like, okay. But then there'd be parts where they'd be both standing there ready to punch. And I'd be like, that's not Shatner. What am I looking at here? <laughs> Holding a hearing to decide the fate of Khan and his people, Kirk offers Khan exile to CD Alpha 5, a harsh world that he believes would be a perfect place for Khan to, quote, tame. Rather than sending them to a penal colony, Khan accepts citing Milton's Paradise Lost. Khan, really big into literature. Definitely. Classic literature. It's, yeah. a, it's kind of annoying, really. Something they brought into this film. Yeah. Instead of a court-martial for McGivers, Kirk allows her to go with Khan. Spock notes that it would be interesting to see what Khan would make of Ceta Alpha 5 in 100 years. Kind of a dickhead thing to say, considering what happened. Yeah. <laughs> As a gesture of good faith, Paramount changed the film's title from its original working title, The Vengeance of Khan, as it was too close to the working title for Lucasfilm's upcoming Star Wars film. After the name change was made, Lucasfilm changed their title from Revenge of the Jedi to Return of the Jedi. An even earlier working title for the Trek film was The Undiscovered Country, <laughs> a title which would eventually be used for the sixth film of the yeah. franchise. <laughs> yeah, Meyer was really adamant about getting that Undiscovered Country material <laughs> we in We gotta there. get that one out. 
The interesting thing about Meyer, though, as director of this film, is that he's a lot like us. He had never Was seen it? an episode of the original show, and so he brought in what he described as a, quote, healthy disrespect, meaning it would be far more interesting to have someone in there who didn't know all these things and would question everything, yeah, yeah. thus force things to sort of be different. And I was actually reminded of the rumors in recent years of how Quentin Tarantino was maybe going to write and direct a, a Star Trek film, or at least write one. I was always so interested in that. Well, the script that he wrote still might actually happen, although okay. I don't think he's going to direct it. But yeah. I don't know. Who knows? It seems like maybe that's not going to happen. But for whatever reason, Star Trek as a franchise has always been kind of open to reinventing the wheel. It's not quite as valuable as a commodity as some of these other things, even though there are so many iterations of it. Definitely. Deep Space Nine, Voyager, The Next Generation, several cartoons, Strange New Worlds, Picard. There's all these shows. There's so many of them. Yet, it's mostly television, movies, they've hit or miss. I think the first two J.J. Abrams vehicles were very popular. I don't know that the third one did super well, but the Next Generation films, I think, were always about the same, like pretty solid, and these ones did well, but not Star Wars numbers or anything. They have a pretty reasonable franchise, but they're one that's always open to being like, well, do you want to come in and just try something completely different? Totally. And they got to that point, and so it seemed like maybe for a minute they were actually going to do the Tarantino thing, which did not happen, but... It would be interesting. I, I think been... it would get people re-interested Absolutely. in Star Trek. Yeah. And I was hoping it was going to be like a hard R. Yeah, it seemed like yeah. it was, but I, I don't know. Who knows? This film officially establishes the 23rd century timeline as the time period for Star Trek, the original series, and for its films. Before this film, this had never been officially established which century the original series took place. According to Gene Roddenberry, the original series could have easily taken place between the 21st and 31st centuries. So oh, a easily. thousand years. Yeah. And star dates were used to allow for this ambiguity in the timeline. In 2285, Admiral James T. Kirk oversees a simulator session of Captain Spock's trainees in the simulation. Lieutenant Savick commands the starship USS Enterprise on a rescue mission to save the crew of the damaged ship Kobayashi Maru. Oh, yes. But is attacked by Klingon cruisers and is critically damaged. The simulation is a no-win scenario designed to test the character of Starfleet officers. I will say I do use Kobayashi Maru oftentimes in my life, anytime that it seems like both choices suck. (laughs) (laughs) You know, no-win situations. Vietnam... Yeah. This right. This podcast. Yeah, exactly. So I was thinking they're trying to play with the audience here a little bit. Yeah. They're setting it up like something real is happening here and all of these characters are dying. Well, okay, yeah. That brings us to the big thing, which we've already touched on, which is Nimoy is lured back to the franchise because he thinks he's going to get this big blaze of glory type death. Which, for an actor, is exciting, I guess. Yeah. I'm not going to have to play this character anymore, plus I get to do a death scene, which is always fun. However, for whatever reason, this particular franchise does not seem to keep secrets well. Not only does the news of Spock's death leak out ahead of time and everyone knows that's coming, but think about the title. Oh, yeah. And the marketing. You know, you're all obsessed with that original series. Well, here's fucking Khan. It's in the title. Yep. 
What's the third movie called? The Search for Spock. Oh, I guess he's not dead. They don't really hide anything (laughs) ever. So this comes out. Everyone is sort of bracing themselves for Spock's death. It's not a big secret, unfortunately. I don't know why. That seems like something you'd want to have for that last (laughs) act. Be like, guess what? It would be like a holy shit. Instead, everyone, at least the diehards, I'm sure regular people maybe didn't know, but a lot of people knew. And so, yeah, this opening sequence was sort of designed in a way to tease it out. Yep. So that people think that this is real for a second and then whatever. I guess in one of the original versions, Spock does die earlier in the film and then they they change it Hmm. because it just wasn't working right and then they save it more towards the end. But yeah, as amateurs in the whole Star Trek world, this is one of many times the Kobayashi Maru is one, but also other times later with Carol Marcus, etc., where something is introduced into this particular film that you're somewhat familiar with, but you're not sure if this is the first time it's ever been mentioned. You right. know, Kirk has a son in this movie. You're yeah, like, yeah. Has this been mentioned before? I don't know. Yeah, I didn't think so. Yeah, there's a lot of things. So I was looking up. It's like, is this the first time Kobayashi Maru is actually mentioned? And it is. Oh, yeah. This is the creation of it. This is something that would influence at least the first two of the Abrams films. But to me, then, because that's what I see first, this becomes a huge integral part of Star Trek. Absolutely. But it wasn't even in the original series or the first film. <laughs> it's just something that's Kirstie Alley's doing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we have William Shatner as James C. Kirk. We have Leonard Nimoy as Spock, who at this point is a captain. Kirk is an admiral. DeForest Kelly as Leonard McCoy. James Duhon as Montgomery Scott. George Takei as Hikuri Sulu. Walter Koenig as Pavel Chekhov, Nichelle Nichols as Uhura. All the regular people from the show are back in action, even though a lot of them didn't really seem like they wanted to do it. But (laughs) Shatner convinced them because he knew it was best for his career to have them all back. (laughs) It's about what's best for business. So we have Kirstie Alley as Savick, Spock's protege and a Starfleet commander in training aboard the Enterprise, serving on board as the navigator in Chekhov's absence. She has a strong habit of questioning Kirk's eccentric heroic methods, preferring a more by-the-book approach. Constantly quoting rules and regulations to Kirk, she is actually vindicated during the battle with Khan, and yeah. her manner provides Spock with the idea of for how to talk and code to Kirk down at the science lab. She's sort of like Spock if he hadn't had all these years with Kirk where Kirk's bringing him back towards the middle a little bit. Well, there's also a pretty big difference, too, which we're going to get to in a second. When Kirk and McCoy intend to beam down to the science lab, she insists on going with them on the pretext of protecting Kurt. The movie was Allie's first feature film role. But here's where things get a little bit different. And they Mm -hmm. don't do a ton of explaining in the film itself. Savick cries during Spock's funeral. Oh, yeah. Meyer said that during filming, someone asked him, are you going to let her do that? And I said, yeah. And they said, but Vulcans don't cry. And I said, well, that's what makes this such an interesting Vulcan. (laughs) But the character's emotional outburst can be partly explained by the fact that Savick was described as of mixed Vulcan-Romulan heritage in the script. Though no indication is given on film, Allie was so fond of her Vulcan ears that she would take them home Hmm. with her at the end of each day. The deal is she's part Vulcan, part Romulan. She does express emotion several times throughout the film. Very early on during the Kobayashi Maru, she says, damn. Oh, yeah. In an emotional outburst, which is something that Spock would never do. 
So there are clues along the way that she's a sure. little different. Right. Kim Cattrall was Nicholas Meyer's first choice for the role of Savick and auditioned for the role, but eventually proved unavailable in Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country from 1991. Savick was supposed to return as a major character and Cattrall was signed on. However, Cattrall did not want to be the third actress to play the role of Savick and the character was changed to Vulcan officer Lieutenant Valorous. So Savick is played by a different person in Star Trek III, The Search for Spock. It seems like that just came down to money. Who is to blame yeah. between Kirstie Alley and the studio? I don't know. Probably, probably the, the studio. studio. Yeah. yeah. She seemed to say that they lowballed her. I'm sure. I think she also had signed on for Cheers. Maybe not Cheers, but not yet, but yeah. something. She would signed on to something, and so it made her kind of unavailable anyway. That's what we and needed, then the though. the money thing, and then... Cheers, the most room picture. I'm surprised they never did that, yeah. actually. If Cheers would have been popular during the 90s, it probably would have happened. Mm-hmm. Now you might be saying, well, they never did Seinfeld the movie. Well, come no on. No need. Yeah, Seinfeld wasn't going to do that <laughs> shit, but the people in Cheers would have done it, yeah, for yeah. sure. <laughs> Later, Dr. McCoy visits Kirk on his birthday at Kirk's home in San Francisco, seeing Kirk in low spirits due to his age. How about this luxury bachelor pad, though, Kirk has? The doctor advises him to get a new command instead of growing old behind a desk. That's good advice. Yeah, they just used a fake picture for the skyline of San Francisco. (laughs) I think they reused it from another movie and then maybe added in some things to make it look a little futuristic or something. Happy birthday, Jim. Thanks. Romulan ale. Why, Bones, you know this is illegal. I only use it for medicinal purposes. I got aboard a ship that brings me in a case every now and then across a neutral zone. Now, don't be a prig. 2283. Yeah, well, it takes this stuff a while to ferment. Mm. Here, give me. Now, you open this one. I'm almost afraid to. What is it? Klingon aphrodisiacs? No. Bones. This is charming. For most patients your age, I usually recommend Retinox 5. I'm allergic to Retinox. Exactly. Cheers. Cheers. (sighs) Happy birthday. I don't know what to say. Well, you could say thank you. Thank you. Damn it, Jim, what the hell is the matter with you? Other people have birthdays. Why are we treating yours like a funeral? Bones, I don't want to be lectured. What the hell do you want? This is not about age. And you know it. It's about you flying a goddamn computer console when you want to be out there hopping galaxies. Spare me your notions of poetry, please. We all have our assigned duties. Paul, you're hiding. Hiding behind rules and regulations. Who am I hiding from? From yourself, Admiral. Don't mince words, Bones. What do you really think? Jim, I'm your doctor and I'm your friend. Get back your command. Get it back before you turn into part of this collection. 
before you really do grow old. Yeah, it's a big recurring thing in this film is the passage of time and aging. Definitely. And then eventually death and confronting death. Yeah. I felt like all of that was really resonating with this podcast. I would agree with that, but I did think it was funny that this movie is now over 40 years old, basically, and we know that Shatner would continue <laughs> yeah. to play Captain Kirk for at least another 10 to 15 years. That part of it is weird. He's still alive now somehow, even though most people in this film are dead, unfortunately, but... Yeah, just ageless. And he doesn't look like he's in his 90s at all. No. He still looks kind of the same, except heavier. Yeah. <laughs> I know the hair is fake and right, the right. whole thing, but like he still basically looks the same. Yeah. <laughs> I like the way that McCoy and some of the other characters interact with Kirk. That's just something that like a, a new person to Star Trek would notice. Yeah. I just like how they kind of treat him and talk to him because it's kind of just funny. Yeah. (laughs) There's definitely all this respect and he's their captain and then he's an admiral and all this stuff, but they're always like like, shit talking going on too. Not shit talking, but just sort of like careful. Yeah. (laughs) If we say the wrong thing, he'll run into his room and slam the door and (laughs) cry on his bed. (laughs) Walking on eggshells. Yeah, Yeah. a little bit. (laughs) I don't know. I feel like McCoy and even Spock a little bit are willing to speak their mind to him. Yeah, Spock more so, but he's not doing it with like zero motives. Right, So it's kind of a different thing. It is a Star Trek running gag that there is a Federation embargo against Romulan ale, but this still doesn't prevent resourceful people like Dr. McCoy using medicinal privileges as a loophole from procuring some for Admiral Kirk as a birthday present. And many Star Trek captains and flag officers have over the years in Star Trek canon viewed it as something of a status symbol, much like Cuban cigars in the United States. Meanwhile, the Starship Reliant is on a mission to search for a lifeless planet to test the Genesis device, a technology designed to reorganize dead matter into habitable worlds. Reliant's Captain Clark Terrell, played by Paul Winfield, and his first commander, Pavel Chekhov, beam down to evaluate a planet they believe to be Ceta Alpha 6. Mm. When they're down there, you can tell pretty quickly after they've beamed in that it's a desolate world. Pretty barren. A lot of bad vibes. (laughs) Not really a great place to hang out. You wouldn't want a vacation here. But they find some quarters, some kind of a shack or something, and Chekhov eventually finds something that says Botany Bay. And he's like, oh, shit. We gotta go. They've made a big mistake. (laughs) Once there, Terrell and Chekhov are captured by the genetically engineered tyrant, Khan Noonien Singh. I do wonder what they were out doing. Explaining they're actually on Ceta Alpha 5. Khan and the gang? I don't know. Well, they gotta scavenge. Yeah. 15 years prior, Kirk exiled Khan and his fellow supermen to Ceta Alpha 5. After they attempted to take over his ship, However, the neighboring planet exploded, devastating the surface of Ceta Alpha 5. So at the conclusion of Space Seed, they go to this planet. Even though it's not the greatest place ever, it seems pretty habitable. Mm -hmm. He's this Superman. He'll make it work. But tragedy strikes, and the planet turns into a fucking horrible place. Are you a little bit surprised by how much wrath from Khan? I don't know that this is... Something I would really be carrying with me. Well, uh, the guy who banished you to this death world. 
Well, how did and then your Kirk wife know, dies? though, that this planet was going to blow up next to it? I don't know, Matt. I mean, yeah. are we really questioning supervillains' motives now? <laughs> I don't know. I feel like Khan has good motives compared to exploring. most villains in movies. <laughs> yes. He's like, this guy sent me to this horrible place. (laughs) It sucks. My hot wife died. I'm just going to say in canon, I like to pretend that his wife is McIvers from the episode. They never actually say that. I think it's supposed to be. I I see. I don't actually, Mm. because I think they would have said it, but I'm going to pretend that it is. Now, you brought some interesting information to to me that I didn't know. Right. Because it's a kind of a big moment here. Where Chekhov remembers Khan. Right. It's like, we got to get the fuck out of here. But Chekhov, not actually in that episode, nor was he even in the cast during that season. Right. And I watched that episode and I couldn't remember who was in it or not in it, but it seems like George Takei wasn't in it either. Chekhov was definitely not in it. He wasn't even on the show yet till season two. Which is funny because George Takei, I think I also saw, was thrown around as being, he was supposed, instead of Captain Terrell... Sulu was supposed to be the captain of this ship originally. I don't know why well, they made that switch, but... Here's the thing. Yeah. George Takei was on the show. Right. So you could buy that he's just not on screen, but he was there. Sure, sure. Whereas Chekhov wasn't even there. Yeah. At least according to canon. Well, But I, I believe... guess maybe they're saying that he was and just he hadn't shown up yet. I don't want to get too crazy with it, but I believe I read something that there was a novelization that uh-huh. mentions that Chekhov was actually on the ship during that time and had a night watch of Khan when he was in okay. his cell or whatever. So they tried to wreck yeah, yeah. a little bit. Right. It's not really like a huge deal because Star Trek is definitely one of those shows where there's people in the background who aren't really characters and then every now and again they get called into duty and then they're like a guest star, like yep. McGivers. Yeah, yeah. She's this woman that's so involved with Khan and then goes with Khan, but that was the only episode she was ever in. So we have Ricardo Montalban reprising his role as Khan, a genetically enhanced Superman who had used his strength and intellect to briefly rule much of the Earth in the 1990s. Montalban said that he believed all good villains do villainous things, but think that they are acting for the right reasons. In this way, Khan uses his anger at the death of his wife to justify his pursuit of Kirk. Contrary to speculation that Montalban used a prosthetic chest, Oh, yeah. No artificial devices were added to Montalban's muscular physique. It he does, was an older man, but he kept himself in good shape. It does sort of have a fake look to it, though. Yeah. Lindsay only watched two seconds of this movie, but the one thing that she commented on was that that asked if his chest was fake, if that was real. Evidently it was. Yeah. Montalban enjoyed making the film so much that he played the role for much less than was offered him. And counted the role as a career highlight. I don't understand what that means. Does that mean that he actually took less money? I don't know why you would do that. His major complaint was that he was never face-to-face with Shatner for a scene. I had to do my lines with a script girl who, as you might imagine, sounded nothing like Bill, he explained. Bennett noted that the film was close to getting the green light when it occurred to the producers that no one had asked Montalban if he could take a break from filming the television series Fantasy Island to take part. In the Blu-ray special feature, The Captain's Log, Ricardo Montalban says that once he committed to this film, he realized that he had trouble getting back into the character Khan. After years of playing Mr. Rourke on Fantasy Island, he found that he was stuck in that character. He requested a tape of Space Seed from Paramount Studios, 
and proceeded to watch it repeatedly. By the third or fourth watching, he had recaptured the essence of Khan's character. Yeah, I guess that's true. Not going to catch it on streaming or anything. Yeah, it was probably just a memory at yeah. that point of like, yeah, I guess I did this one time, but what was it like? It's funny, though, how far along they were with deciding that this was the path for Without Rafa having Khan. him locked up? No. I yeah. had no idea if that would actually happen. Right. In all fairness, like, why wouldn't it? But, <laughs> I mean, he was just on a stupid TV show. But it is just sort of indicative of the fly-by-night nature of this franchise. Absolutely. Where like, yeah, this will work out, I yeah, guess. Yeah. We'll just do this. I don't know you. But you, I never forget a face, Mr. Jackal, isn't it? I never thought to see your face again. Chekhov, who is this man? Criminal captain. A product of late 20th century genetic engineering. What do you want with us? Sir, I demand of you. You are in a position to demand nothing, sir. I, on the other hand, am in a position to grant nothing. What you see is all that remains of the ship's company and crew of the Botany Bay. Marooned here 15 years ago by Captain James T. Kirk. Listen, you men and women, you have a catch and cap. <laughs> Save your strength, Captain. <laughs> These people had sworn to live and die at my command 200 years before you were born. Do you mean he never told you the tale? To amuse your captain. No? Never told you how the Enterprise picked up the Botany Bay lost in space from the year 1996. Myself and the ship's company in cryogenic freeze. I've never even met Admiral Kirk. Admiral. 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 Never told you how Admiral Kirk sent 70 of us into exile on this barren sand heap with only the contents of these cargo bays to sustain us. You lie! In City Alpha 5 there was life! A fair chance! This is City Alpha 5! SETI Alpha 6 exploded six months after we were left here. The shock shifted the orbit of this planet and everything was laid waste. Admiral Kirk never bothered to check on our progress. It was only the fact of my genetically engineered intellect that allowed us to survive. On Earth, 
200 years ago, I was a prince with power over millions. Captain Kirk was your host. He repaid his hospitality by trying to steal his ship and murder him. I like this scene with Khan confronting Terrell and Chekhov because it allows Montalban to chew the scenery a little bit and just how pissed he is that Kirk has become an admiral. <laughs> like, he really hang- gets, like, hung up on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Admiral. <laughs> yeah, he's really not into the career trajectory of James Kirk. It's also a- an added insult to injury that they arrived at City Alpha 5 by accident. Yeah. He's like, oh, you weren't even looking for me. When he realizes that, like, <laughs> yeah. you guys are just here by accident. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> you left me here 15 years ago. Terrell, in that scene, just sweating like a whore in church. Just so much sweat Absolutely. pouring off of yeah. him. <laughs> Especially when they pull out these fucking eels. Oof, I would have been too, though. It's disgusting. Khan implants Chekhov and Terrell with indigenous eel larvae which Khan tells them killed several of his followers, including his wife. These motherfuckers, like... Doesn't take revenge on these things. Miniature graboids from Tremors. Some wrath. Don't they look like the thing from Tremors? Yeah, yeah. They render them susceptible to mind control. And it's a not pleasant situation. It's not even that they go in the ear, which would be beyond horrible. I do think they use something similar to this in J.J. Abrams' Star Trek too. They burrow yeah. into like the base of the ear. It's not even like they go in the hole that's already there, which would be horrible enough. They have to actually like burrow into it. Yikes. Which is Awful. doubly terrible. Yeah. Khan uses the now malleable Chekhov and Terrell to capture Reliant. Learning of the Genesis device, Khan attacks Space Station Regula 1, where the device is being developed by Kirk's former lover, Dr. Carol Marcus and their son, David. Yeah, chemistry still in the air, I'd say. Carol is portrayed by B.B. Besh in the 2009 Star Trek. She is portrayed by Alice Eve. So for those of you not familiar, I was also well, I don't think she's of, in it until Into Darkness. She's not in until the second one? Right. Okay. That was another thing that was a learning curve for me, was trying to figure out, well, okay, so Kirk and Carol have like this history they have a son does kirk know about this son was this ever in any of the other star treks has this been established before are we supposed to know who carol is or is the joke to the audience like we're figuring this out like oh that's kirk's son oh he must have fucked this lady i don't know like that whole thing is (laughs) new to me and it seemed to me that carol and david are not a part of star trek before this this is new well i I don't know is he a part of it beyond this is he in the future movies? I believe David is in the sequel. Okay. Uh, I'm not 100%. I yeah, that's what I meant, David. Yeah, I believe he does get killed at some point along the way, if I'm remembering what I saw on Wikipedia. Okay, good. <laughs> but it's strange. Yeah. That's, that's the whole thing about trying to tackle a franchise for an episode of this show that you have no familiarity with. You're just thrown into it. So when things like this pop up, 
you're not sure if this is something you're supposed to know already or if this is new information in the world of this film. How would we know that? Sure. I have no idea. Yeah. I don't have time to fucking learn everything about Star <laughs> Trek right now. Although, I will say that, as I was saying to you earlier, I did always imagine there'd be a time in my life where I would get around to getting into this. Yeah. Because I do get into everything eventually, even if I don't love it, just to learn about it and try to figure out what it's like. And there's so much Star Trek stuff that, if there's any way possible for me to like it, that would be right. a plus because then you have so much material to get into. Well, I had my moment, and it was really only watching some episodes of the original series and this movie. All right. And that was the that was the moment. We have a problem. Something may be wrong in regular one. We've been ordered to investigate. If memory serves, regular one is a scientific research laboratory. I told Starfleet Command all we had was a boatload of children. But we're the only ship in the quadrant. Spock, these cadets of yours, how good are they? How will they respond under real pressure? As with all living things, each according to his gifts. Of course, the ship is yours. No, that won't be necessary. Just get me to regular one. As a teacher on a training mission, I am content to command the Enterprise. If we are to go on actual duty, it is clear that the senior officer on board must assume command. It may be nothing. Garbled communications. You take the ship. Jim, you proceed from a false assumption. I am a Vulcan. I have no ego to bruise. You're about to remind me that logic alone dictates your actions? I would not remind you of that would you know so well. If I may be so bold, it was a mistake for you to accept promotion. Commanding a starship is your first best destiny. Anything else is a waste of material. I would not presume to debate you. That is wise. In any case, were I to invoke logic, Logic clearly dictates that the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Or the one. You're my superior officer. You are also my friend. I have been and always shall be yours. Kirk assumes command of Enterprise after the ship, initially deployed on a training cruise, receives a garbled and confusing distress call from Regular One. Now, I did sense a little bit of BCI going on with Carol and Kirk here, even though when he talks, she can't really understand what he's saying, and he's confused about what she's saying, but the tension was there. We had definite BCI, booty call implications. Yeah. She's coming through the monitor. She's just like, you up? <laughs> What's going on? I know. It was one of those things where it's like, I don't know. Kirk- you looking to get in this pussy tonight? <laughs> I feel like David has some. There's a little chip on his shoulder, you know. Dad not in the mix. Yeah. Well, at the end of the movie, he admits that he knows Kirk is his father, but the rest of the time he acts like he doesn't know, so you're not sure if she tells him or if he's just in denial about it. Although Gene Roddenberry created Starfleet in Star Trek, the original series, with a military structure, he deliberately avoided getting very detailed on the nature of that structure, what he called, 
quote, excessive militarism. However, director Nicholas Meyer decided to further expand this part of Star Trek mythos, making the uniforms and insignias more military in style, adding a ship's bell and boatswain's whistle, and writing the dialogue to be more accurate to actual naval protocol. These details have greatly influenced the films and spinoff series that followed. But these two, Carol and David, are essentially the shepherds of this Project Genesis. So we're dealing with this Project Genesis thing, which is this invaluable tool, which much like many other franchises and movies and iterations, it's this fucking life-giving thing that's so incredible, but can also be... Destroy the world. Well, I guess destroy the galaxy. <laughs> into a weapon that will destroy everything. So we've got that going on with some baby mama drama. Absolutely. Courtesy of Kirk and his... Yeah, Kirk, uh, at this fairly uh, reflective time of life, is finding himself with his hands full here. Yeah, it's sort of ironic, I, I guess, that home. the original Khan episode was called Space Seed. Yeah. <laughs> since that's what fucking Kirk's been spilling all over the galaxies for years. <laughs> I did think it was kind of wild that David is actually his only son, his only child that is on record. I know, because he's got to be like a top bachelor. In Starfleet, well, maybe least. most of the alien ass he was getting, it's not like it wasn't going to happen. Can get pregnant, yeah. from humans. No. Maybe there's not like a a connection. There. Yeah, I don't know the science of it all, but <laughs> you're not a scientist. You're not a scientist or a Star Trek expert. Well, at least not when it comes to intergalactic breeding. <laughs> In order to explain to Spock and McCoy what Genesis is, Kirk shows them a video that Carol made for some reason. Well, I've got sick bay ready. Now, will someone please tell me what's going on? Computer, request security procedure and access to Project Genesis summary. Identify for retina scan. Kirk, Admiral James T. Security scan approved. Summary, please. Project Genesis, a proposal to the Federation. Carol Marcus. Yes. What exactly is Genesis? Well, put simply, Genesis is life from lifelessness. It is a process whereby molecular structure is reorganized at the subatomic level into life-generating matter of equal mass. Stage one of our experiments was conducted in the laboratory. Stage two of the series will be attempted in a lifeless underground. Stage three will involve the process on a planetary scale. It is our intention to introduce the Genesis device into a pre-selected area of a lifeless space body, a moon or other dead form. The device is delivered, instantaneously causing what we call the Genesis effect. Matter is reorganized with life-generating results. Instead of a dead moon, a living, breathing planet capable of sustaining whatever life forms we see fit to deposit on it. Fascinating. The reformed moon simulated here represents the merest fraction of the Genesis potential, should the Federation wish to fund these experiments to their logical conclusion. 
When we consider the cosmic problems of population and food supply, the usefulness of this process becomes clear. This concludes our proposal. Thank you for your attention. The computer simulation of Genesis transforming a dead planet into a habitable one, inhabitable planets into dead planets, is the first complete yeah. computer-generated sequence ever used in feature film. How handy would this have been for Khan and the gang back in this planet that they're stuck on? <laughs> yeah. yeah. It is a direct brainchild of ex-Boeing engineer Lauren Carpenter, who after Boeing went on to join George Lucas's Industrial Light and Magic. At Boeing in the late 1970s, Carpenter discovered that Mandelbrot fractals could be used to create realistic mountain landscapes for computer animations of new aircraft designs, a previously intractable problem, and start a revolution in computer graphics and simulation. The demonstration of the effects of the Genesis device on a barren planet was to be presented by using traditional animation, but Paramount Studios executives asked for something a little more impressive. Yeah. The scene was shot using an entirely computer-generated sequence. The effects were produced by the graphics group division of Lucasfilm. The division would later become an independent company under the name Pixar. Mm. I do think this part looks pretty cool. Nah. It looks cool for 1982. Okay, fair caveat. I mean, it looks like sort of an outdated computer. but Sure. It's interesting because there was nothing like it prior. Essentially, what they're worried about is if the Genesis Project gets into the wrong hands, we're talking about Universal Armageddon, simultaneously good and bad, creation, destruction. McCoy, of course, can see it, but Spock, buried under his own logic, doesn't see it the same way. Mm. You green-blooded inhuman. <laughs> McCoy losing his patience always. as if he doesn't know yeah. Spock. Are you out of your Vulcan mind? That's always my favorite one. In route to regular one, Enterprise is ambushed. Enterprise is ambushed. Who am I, fucking Shatner, pronouncing these words? <laughs> what does he say the one time? He's like, when he's yelling at Khan, he says something, like, the way he pronounces it is so fucking funny to me. <laughs> He says, like, you something, as in, like, you would, or you, I don't know, just the way he says it. <laughs> you like, would. It's like, you're out of your mind. You are. <laughs> I don't know. It's just, it, the way he said it was so weird. I was like, oh, God. In route to regular one, Enterprise is ambushed and crippled by Reliant. Our heroes are totally caught off guard because they have no fucking clue what's going on. This is all a mystery at this point. Right. What is happening? Oh, surprise, surprise, James T. Kirk, it's your old pal, Con. Ah, Kirk, my old friend. Do you know the Klingon proverb that tells us revenge is a dish that is best served cold? It is very cold in space. Khan offers to spare Kirk's crew if they relinquish all material related to Genesis. Kirk, thinking on his feet, instead stalls for time and taking advantage of Khan's unfamiliarity with starship controls, remotely lowers Reliance shields, enabling a counterattack. Khan is forced to retreat and effect repairs while Enterprise limps to regular one. The good news is that even though Kirk and company were surprised by Khan's arrival on the scene, Having hijacked a ship from their own fleet, the villains do not actually have Genesis yet. So what's going on? But there is a rough scene inside the Enterprise. They did take on some damage. Some people oh, got yes. hurt. There's people erupting into flames <laughs> randomly. Well, the shields were down. 
This movie is very strange. I did enjoy it a lot, maybe even more than I thought I would, but it does take some getting used to like what they consider to be the big suspenseful the action, action moments. moments. Yeah, I know. You're kind of like, oh, this the, that was it. Right, I know. Because <laughs> the whole thing is more of like a game of cat and mouse than it is yeah like full-on two people going toe-to-toe with fighting each other right we've already mentioned that con and kirk don't have the big face-to-face that you would probably expect and i do think that it does hinder the movie a little bit you keep expecting there to be one big confrontation with them together and then when you read the quotes from montalban and you find out they recorded these things like four months apart Mm -hmm. and it's a little disappointing, especially since the original Khan series Kirk's ass. gave us the face-to-face fight. Yeah, yeah. That already happened. So if the show could do it, yeah. why is this movie not doing it? I would it? I don't love know. to see Kirk try to punch him in the chest and his hand just completely shatters. <laughs> it makes sense because even in Space Seed, he has to outthink him yeah. in order to beat him. And that's what he has to do here, too. So you don't really need the physical confrontation one-on-one, but it takes a little adjustment. You have to get used to that because that's not how movies would be now. Right. Your expectations have to be completely different. Kirk, McCoy, and Savick beam to the station and find Terrell and Chekhov alive along with the slaughtered members of Carol's team. I will say this. Pretty cool coats. Definitely. With the big, huge collars. Yeah. Not popped. Not popped collars. Down on their shoulders, but huge. Right enormous <laughs> which is weird because the time in which these things get made ultimately bleed into it even though it's always supposed to be futuristic so in the original series you definitely have 60s stuff bleeding into it yeah for example MacGyver or what what was her name Mac, whatever her name was from just, yeah the space seat episode the one that goes with Khan she's very much a 60s woman she just everything about her is 60s love it which is intentional for the character because they're making her obsessed with the yeah. old stuff, but whatever. Even in these films, stuff bleeds in. But the odd thing is that I would say that in Star Trek The Motion Picture, which came out in 79, Wrath of Khan, 82, I think Search for Spock, 84, even into 82, 84, it still feels 100% 70s leading totally. in and yeah, not yeah. anything with the 80s yet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're in that carryover time. This sequence definitely has like a little bit of a horror movie vibe as they're trying to go through this ship. There's some dead bodies and some suspense. Definitely. Oddly, space rats, which, I mean, I didn't Gross. think that could be a thing. Yeah. Don't need it. Don't need it as a part of my life. Don't need it. Don't want it. Don't no. like it. Eventually, the trio, now joined by Chekhov and Terrell, find Carol and David hiding Genesis deep inside the nearby planetoid. However, if it seemed too easy, that's because it was. Khan has used Chekhov and Terrell as unwilling spies. They're both still very much under the influence of the ear eels. Khan orders them to kill Kirk. Terrell manages to resist the power of the eel and kill himself while Chekhov collapses <laughs> as the eel leaves his body. Seems like sort of a, an unfair trade-off. I don't know. If Terrell was able to overcome this, I just feel like there's something else he could have done other than blast himself to oblivion. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. Chekhov just gets to fall down and the thing crawls out of his ear. It's like, why did he just kill him? Well, it almost makes it seem like the two are connected somehow. Yeah. Khan transports Genesis aboard the Reliant, intending to maroon Kirk on the lifeless planetoid. Khan! Yeah. It's good stuff. <laughs> this is where 
Khan first mentions his dead wife and blaming Kirk for it. Well, it's not the first time he mentions his dead wife, but this is the first time he uses it as the motivation. Yeah. And it's clear that his emotions are out of control because at this point, which his underling guy will remind him. Right. You've won. Yeah. You've got it. It's over. (laughs) Yeah. But now he becomes obsessed with Kirk and Kirk uses that against him. I just made a note here. I feel like it needs to be said, despite the fact that she seemed like a little bit of a wild card and maybe a little out of pocket with some of the political stuff at the end of her life. I just wrote Kirstie Alley cute right here. <laughs> she does look cute as a Vulcan. Yeah. She's always a good looking woman. You're into the ears. But I was definitely digging the vibe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was picking up what she was putting I think down. that's fair. I think it needed to be said, and I'm proud that I said it. <laughs> We're overcoming all of our differences and divides to say what needs to be said. Absolutely. (laughs) I did what you wanted. I stayed away. Why didn't you tell him? How can you ask me that? Were we together? Were we going to be? You had your world, and I had mine. And I wanted him in mine, not chasing through the universe with his father. Actually, he's a lot like you. In many ways. Please tell me what you're feeling. There's a man out there I haven't seen in 15 years. He's trying to kill me. You show me a son, I'd be happy to help him. My son. My life that could have been. It wasn't. Kirk and Carol have some real talk about the sun. And she, like, <laughs> when were you going to let me know about this? She's like, well, we were going to be together or what? Yeah. I wanted him here with me, not she out with you. She flips it back on him. He's just like, you know what? My friend bought me fucking cheater glasses for my birthday, yeah. and I'm so fucking pissed. <laughs> <laughs> I need you to be nice to me today. <laughs> How about a roll in the hay for old time's sake? <laughs> Kirk, McCoy, and Savick are down on the planetoid with Carol and David while the rest of the crew is in the Enterprise trying to get her back up the snuff. Plus, somewhere nearby, Khan and his crew are hiding in the Wounded Reliant, but we're not entirely sure where they are. I think they're supposed to be on the other side of the planet or something, kind of just chilling. (laughs) Which is, again, a recurring thing in Star Trek that you have to get used to. There's a lot of downtime where they just sort of regroup (laughs) before they clash again oh yeah that's something that seems to happen a lot right it's like okay well that we had our fight and now we gotta take a time out and regroup then we'll be back by the way many of the actors playing Khan's remaining henchmen were chippendale dancers at the time of that's filming. amazing i can totally see that carol shows 
Kirk and the others, some of the project results from Genesis, they go into that world that yeah. it created. It's, it's kind of like cool a looking. 3D printer. It's totally fake, obviously. Yeah. Oh, this was the part I was thinking about, actually, when I said it looks kind of cool. And it's reminiscent of the old days of filmmaking, yeah. where they would just walk into a painting. You just put a painting on screen. And right. Like, this is the movie. Yeah. And that was <laughs> That's cool. the backdrop. They were still doing that for another 10 years after this. I oh, yeah. think, you know, we talked about it in Batman. Mm-hmm. Other films, I think they kind of phased it out eventually with CGI and some of the more modern stuff. Right. But I always kind of liked it. And especially if you could figure out that way where like 96% of what the audience is looking at is a painting, but then you still have like characters moving and oh, a little right. piece of yeah. it or something. I think there's a cool shot in, this is going to be a weird pool, but Newsies. Wow. The Disney movie with yeah. Christian Bale, the <laughs> musical, where there's a shot of like these street urchins from New York City in okay. like the 20s or whatever this is supposed to be, uh-huh. and they're like on the Brooklyn Bridge or whatever. And it's clearly some old painting of like the Brooklyn Bridge or whatever bridge it's supposed to yeah. be. But then there's like people actually moving. You know what I mean? There's like, definitely a charm to it. Yeah, it's kind of cool. I do think the Genesis Project results looks cool because there's something charming about this movie where. The parts where they're going through the purple nebula in space or this part with like the fake world or whatever, or even the shit at the end where Spock's casket lands in the Genesis world. Right. And you got like that There's extra something very flashing star. Like of another era yeah. of how like it all looks. Some of it looks very real, like when you're actually down by his casket mm-hmm. and you're about with trees and shit. Some of it's very fake like the purple nebula or this Genesis world that we're looking at in this scene. But it all kind of fits this vibe of late 70s, early 80s. Yeah, Filmmaking didn't look like this for very long. It moved on to something else. So it's very much of a time. And there's something fun and comforting about it. I think overall the sets feel mostly small scale in this movie, but I think that fits the vibe. Savick asks about the Kobayashi Maru and how she wasn't able to do it. And Kirk basically just tells her that he doesn't believe in no-win scenarios. He's like, I cheated. I rewrote the program, bitch. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to keep calling you Mr. too. Yeah. It's like when you rage quit a video game and then lower the difficulty. (laughs) I was at the point with this movie where I was calling my friend who knows about Star Trek to just ask him things. Like, why do they keep calling Kirstie Alley Mr.? That was throwing me off, too. Which I still don't really understand fully, but it seems like at one point they were doing a genderless thing that they oh, kind of yeah. got away from, and now they don't really do that. But it is weird, because mm-hmm. you're kind of, without explanation, you're kind of like, what's going on right yeah, now? Yeah, I know. Why is everyone just accepting this and not reacting? Understanding that Khan was listening in on their transmissions, Kirk and Spock used coded arrangements for a rendezvous, which tricks Khan and buys them more time. Kirk directs Enterprise into the nearby Matura Nebula, Conditions inside the nebula render shields useless and compromise targeting systems, making Enterprise and Reliant evenly matched. And the bait is taken. As I said, Khan already has Genesis, so God oh, yeah. only knows what he's doing. Even his advisors who are deathly loyal Driven to him. Driven by are his blind like, rage. Dude, come on. Yeah. Spock notes that Khan's tactics indicate inexperience in three-dimensional combat, which Kirk exploits to disable Reliant. Look... Mm-hmm. I put it out there pretty simply. The special effects do let us down I a think little so. bit in this yeah. big battle sequence. It's uh-huh. kind of cheesy. There's some moments where it's just four or five people staring at a screen, 
So you're expecting, okay, this ship that's going to come up on the screen is going to look so badass, and it looks like a shitty toy. <laughs> There's a few moments that don't hold up as sure, far as sure. special effects and quality and that stuff. There's a little bit of suspension of disbelief, just going with it, the shark and Jaws. You're kind of like, yeah. okay, this is what it is. Well, I found myself thinking of the made-for-TV it that we both yeah, enjoy anything. quite a bit. The effects are not good in that. But they're not quite as bad in this movie. Yeah, yeah. This movie's a little bit better. <laughs> no, than no, that. but I just mean as to what you take out of it, it doesn't matter because the joy of being in these characters and everything that goes on with the backstory and their interactions and the world building of this all is really where the meat and bones of the movie is. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. It doesn't impact the enjoyment of the film, yeah. especially coming this deep into it. But it needs to be said that... Oh, yeah, right. It's noticeable. <laughs> it's a little lacking a few yeah. times. These are supposed to be big, dramatic moments that result in the deaths of many people in the film, and then eventually here in a few minutes, one of the big characters. And if I'm being honest, the special effects and sort of the lack of danger that you feel from them kind of impacts that big death coming in a minute. I think so. Because you're kind of like, what is going... Really? Somebody's dying from this now? Because <laughs> it these doesn't... These little bolts, these flashing white beams. It doesn't feel like it's any more serious than what you would see on an episode of the show. Yeah. That's how low the special right. effects seem. You're kind of like, you're telling me the show wouldn't have even been this good. I <laughs> like, know. <laughs> that's it? It does seem like they could have done a bit better here. Mortally wounded, Khan activates Genesis. The phrase, quote, to the last I grapple with thee, from hell's heart I stab at thee, for hate's sake I spit my last breath at thee, is taken from Captain Ahab's speech in the novel Moby Dick from 1851 by Herman Melville. So Khan quotes Captain Ahab as he dies. It's all very dramatic. Enough with the literary references, Khan. Have you read Milton? <laughs> and then Shatner's like, yeah, I have. It's, that's like the original show. Yeah. That's the episode. From hell's heart, I stab at thee. For hate's sake, I spit my last breath at thee. Sir, the mains are back online. Yes, Scotty. Go through!
Engine room. Well done, Scotty. We've taken our shots at the special effects and and spoken some truths, but I did write down the Nebula action looks cool despite being outdated and low budget. Sure. I did like the purple background, which I know is so simple and cheesy, but nah, I'm like, sometimes it, it looks just works. Cool. Yeah. You have the Enterprise and the Reliant flying around and it looks cool and it was enough. And it goes to show you that no matter if you're talking about a $200 million movie or a $2 million movie, the special effects don't have to matter if the storytelling and everything else is good. Right. Like, if you're invested, what difference does it make? You know that it's fake. <laughs> you oh, know I that know. Star yeah. Trek isn't real. Right. It's a movie. So it just has to be good enough to not completely take you out of it, and then you're fine. Absolutely. Though Kirk's crew detects the activation and attempts to move out of range... They will not be able to escape the nebula in time without the ship's inoperable warp drive. Spock goes to restore the warp power in the engine room, which is flooded with radiation. When McCoy tries to prevent Spock's entry, Spock incapacitates him with a Vulcan nerve pinch. Ah, yes. And performs a mind meld, telling him to, quote, remember. Would He's have loved not to dead have... if yeah. we remember. <laughs> it was a hell of a thing. Oh, really? Spock repairs the warp drive, and Enterprise jumps to warp, escaping the explosion, which forms a new planet. When Kirk realizes what has happened, he races to Spock. You better get down here. Before dying of radiation poisoning, Spock urges Kirk not to grieve, as his decision to sacrifice himself to save the Enterprise was a logical one. Ship. Out of danger. Yes. Don't grieve, Admiral. It is logical. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Or the one. Spock's death was shot over three days, during which no visitors were allowed on set. Spock's death was to be irrevocable, but Nimoy had such a positive experience during filming that he asked if he could add a way for Spock to return in a later film. (laughs) Not quite ready to commit, huh? The mind meld sequence was initially filmed without Kelly's prior knowledge of what was going on. Shatner disagreed with having a clear glass separation between Spock and Kirk during the death scene. He instead wanted a translucent divider, allowing viewers to see only Spock's silhouette. But his objection was overruled. I can't help but think that there's ego involved in that. I would think, yeah. I want to be the only actor during this death yeah. scene. <laughs> 
During Spock's funeral sequence, Meyer wanted the camera to track the torpedo that served as Spock's coffin as it was placed in a long trough and slid into the launcher. The camera crew thought the entire set would have to be rebuilt to accommodate the shot, but Salen suggested putting a dolly into the trough and controlling it from above with an offset arm. Scott's rendition of Amazing Grace on the bagpipes was James Doohan's idea. That got a laugh from me. Okay. I was into it. Oh, dude, yeah. I was completely into it, All but right, it yeah. still made me laugh. Because okay, yeah. I was just like, it's kind of funny that <laughs> Amazing Grace on bagpipes <laughs> were like hundreds of years in the future. Right. Spock's death in the film was widely reported during production. Trekkies wrote letters to protest. <laughs> One paid for trade press advertisements urging Paramount to change the plot, and Nimoy even received death threats. <laughs> <laughs> People were throwing themselves from the Golden Gate Bridge. Imagine threatening to kill the actor because the character is going to be dead. (laughs) Test audiences reacted badly to Spock's death and the film's ending's dark tone, so it was made more uplifting by Bennett. The scene of Spock's casket on the planet and Nimoy's closing monologue were added. Meyer objected but did not stand in the way of the modifications. Nimoy did not know about the scene until he saw the film. But before it opened, the media reassured fans that, quote, Spock will live again. Huh. Due to time constraints, the casket scene was filmed in an overgrown corner of San Francisco's Golden Gate Park, using smoke machines to (laughs) add a primal atmosphere. Talk about nobody being able to be committed to something, though. You've got Leonard Nimoy bailing on it immediately. The movie's being released, and the media's like, don't worry. (laughs) No suspense here for us. Well, you know how these stories go, where... You'll read one thing and then another thing. Because I read a, a version of it where he didn't know that they were going to show his casket in the new world, which right. would imply like he might be resurrected by this new world. Yeah, yeah. At all. Like he didn't even know about it. And right. then when he saw it, he was like, oh, I'm definitely going to get a call from Paramount. Now. Oh, yeah. But then you read another one where he was like, I had such a great time. Let's add in a way where I could still be alive. So, who the fuck sure. Is? I'm sure he toyed with it both ways. Like, I'm done, I'm done. But then, you know, you reach the conclusion. You're like, well, filming that wasn't that bad. What else do I have going on in my career? I don't know if they're going to bring back In Search Of for me to host. Hollywood Hogan dropping the belt. Things changing right up until the end. Hollywood Hogan. (laughs) Yeah, Spock was like, that doesn't work for me, brother. (laughs) I'm going over at the end. Kirk and the ship's crew host a space burial for Spock, whose proton torpedo casket lands on the new Genesis planet. We've got Amazing Grace going. We've got Savick's tears. We've got my tears. It was a hell of a thing when Spock died. Absolutely. We are assembled here today to pay final respects to our honored dead. And yet it should be noted that in the midst of our sorrow, this death takes place in the shadow of new life, the sunrise of a new world, a world that our beloved comrade gave his life to protect and nourish. He did not feel this sacrifice a vain or empty one, and we will not debate his profound wisdom at these proceedings. Of my friend, I can only say this. Of all the souls I have encountered in my travels, his was the most. 
Yaman. Aras. end there is some david and kirk time father and son where david confirms that he is aware that kirk is his father but it just hammers home some of the overarching messages of the film about confronting death mortality passage of time things that would really prove to be kind of irrelevant considering they kept this going for a lot longer but it is interesting as a footnote in history to be like well in the second star trek film they were already kind of thinking that we got to move on from these people it's too old (laughs) well in all fairness plans for the next generation may have already been swirling i don't know how long a tv show would be in pre-production but the next generation started in the 80s it was like 86 88 yeah not that many years so as i was saying i don't know if i said it on this episode or to you but they were also thinking of doing star trek phase two as a tv show uh, right around the same time as the original film and then they just went in a different direction with the film. So the idea of doing more television was always there. I think Roddenberry and probably Paramount people thought, you know what, we could do this as a, a larger franchise and sort of spin this off into all different things, which is something that well, is there... very common now Yeah, because of Marvel, Star Trek, Lord of the Rings, Game of Thrones, things that kind of branch off. When people find one of these things and it's a moneymaker... But they didn't really think that yeah, way yeah. or realize that probably right away. And then after these films started coming out, and then there was, you know, they did a cartoon, I think, in the early 70s after mm-hmm. the show ended. And then, so they'd already kind of put their toe in the water with more things. But there probably was an idea of, well, we want Star Trek to keep going forever now, but maybe Shatner is like too old. So we're going to start planting those seeds. It kind of happened. And then yeah. he also stuck around for a while. It's, both things were kind of true, I guess. The famous Space the Final Frontier monologue is heard for the first time since Star Trek the Original Series, now narrated by Leonard Nimoy. However, this has been changed slightly. Instead of saying, in its five-year mission and to seek out new life, this now says her ongoing mission and to seek out new life forms. The major takeaway for me, I guess as we're sort of reaching the end of the film itself and kind of wrapping up, is Mm -hmm. like, I guess my takeaway with Star Trek is that it's a lot more contemplative and meditative than a lot of other things. And that leads to a different pace, a different set of expectations, a different vibe. Right. I can see the appeal. I don't know that it necessarily matches a lot of the stuff that I'm used to, but I could definitely see revisiting some of this stuff i don't know that i would ever watch the first movie again that was a rough go right but 
I'm intrigued. As yeah. I was saying to you, all of this stuff is on Paramount Plus. If you hover over some of it, you get those like clips playing, yeah, trailers essentially. Even in doing the research for this and then looking up the original Space Seed episode, I'm hovering over Voyager and people are talking, and I'm like, this sounds like something I could maybe get into, but yeah, I don't know if I'm ready yet. Someday I, know. I, I might dive into a lot of this stuff. It just seems very overwhelming. I would like so to watch more of this film series, like with this cast. Well... That brings us to The Search for Spock, 1984. Okay. Directed by Leonard Nimoy. Screenplay by Harv Bennett, who was a big contributor on this film as well. He seems to be the guy that they turned to after they kicked Roddenberry out. I watched the first 15 minutes. Now, I didn't stop because I hated it or it sucked or anything. I just literally was running out of time. And right. And did not have time to watch the movie, which I intended to. Because I was like, all right, well, obviously Spock is alive. I, I feel we like do I should know be able to address yes. what's happening here. But... Yeah, they let Nimoy direct it, which I guess was the big thing to get him back on board. He also directed, like, Three Men and a Baby, which was, like, a huge hit. So he directed stuff. Yeah, wow. But I I did not know that he directed that. I think he also directed that weird Gene Wilder movie. I can't remember what it's called. Where there's, like, a baby and an alarm clock on the poster. It's, like, a terrible-looking poster. He liked doing movies with a baby involved. I was interested in The Search for Spock as well. I've heard that 2, 3, and 4 are basically like their own trilogy Mm -hmm. that tell this story that starts with this film. But yeah, I can't really speak to the specifics. But you would be interested in coming back to it. Yeah, I would say I have a moderate level of interest. It's something that I'd like to do. It is sort of, I mean, you hit on it. The pacing is a little bit different. I feel like you have to be in the mood. Yeah. To get into this world. I think the biggest impediment for me is just how the, the quantity of yeah. it all. Because I am very much like I need to know everything right. kind of a person, which is why it's overwhelming to do episodes like this because then I don't know how to do it. But I guess the easiest thing would be to just sort of pick a place, whether you want it to be the original series or pick something else and just start with it and yeah. see how it goes and then see if you can stick with it. I'd maybe like to hear Ron's recommendations. I don't know or his how ranking. He, yeah, I don't know how he feels about us picking Wrath of Khan. I'm sure that he likes it. It was one of the ones. I believe he only had like the first three or four or something. Which it, was I kind guess, of a loophole to the whole listener request thing, give us multiple choices. There's two ways you can go with it. It's either like, well, yes, of course, Wrath of Khan, that's the obvious one. Or it's like, eh, Wrath of Khan, that's the obvious one. Well, you know, we're at a point with Star Trek where we're doing the obvious. That's right. Yeah. That's where we're at. Uh-huh. So I guess that's all we have to say about Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan. It was a fun experience. It was a new experience for yeah. those of you who are Star Trek experts. I'm sure we missed everything. Yeah, I know. It's a beloved film. It seems like it gets cited often by filmmakers that aren't even people that necessarily play in like the science fiction space. Yeah. I could see that. I think the only thing it's really missing is like you want a more cathartic conclusion between Kirk and Khan. Yeah, I wanted to see that, like Khan like chokeslam Kirk. Yeah, there's not enough physicality from someone right. who looks like him. There's that part where he lifts Chekhov off the ground and you're kind of like, I want more of that. Exactly. Okay, so let's get into the housekeeping segments before we wrap this thing up. We're recording super late at night. Matt is like, falling asleep it's rough which is always infuriating to me i'm always <laughs> just like wake up well you know i don't stay up this late yeah but you're an adult it's time to just wake up yeah but isn't you hit that point in adulthood where it's like 
you start regressing? No, you're not there yet. Okay. Do we have recommendations? Yeah. Or are we skipping? Let's skip recommendations. We're skipping recommendations and moving right into mailbag. All right. All right. All right. All right, you go ahead. You go ahead. You keep it secret. But you remember this. When you control the mail, you control information. Today's email comes from Mike, who we just did a listener request for. The Sling Blade episode, I believe, right? Yes. So it's good to hear from Mike already. Ideally, maybe we would try to sync this up a little bit more with the people emailing, but we're just reading the emails in order that they come. So if we've already done your listener request, then, you know, they're not going to That's how it goes. So Mike sends us an email with the subject line of stuff. Oh, good. What's up, Zach? Mike Murphy here. Thought I'd check in with you guys. I enjoyed hearing my previous email read on the show. Figured I would clear up a couple of things on there. Oh, please. First, he referenced the quote, Twitter is our Vietnam. That was a quote from the Taxi Driver episode, and when I referenced you guys talking about relocating when older, I said in your 50s, but I think I just applied my own age. That was in the Heat episode. You were talking about Amy Brenneman being alone in L.A. That makes sense. Yeah. My fr- is that where we were trying to le- relocate to, to hang out with Amy No, we Brenneman? were just talking about her life, because oh, yeah. she's like alone. Yeah, right. And she's kind of like this hot woman, and... She just talks to this guy, and he's like, why are you asking me questions? <laughs> it's a book about metals. Yeah. And she's like, yeah, I want to suck this guy's dick. Right. My friend Dave and I both liked the reading of his email about the island of Dr. Moreau. I can't remember our first discussion about that quote-unquote film. All right. Pretty funny shot there. Sure. But he always defended it no matter what I said or read, played, what others say about it. He's now trying to change the narrative on the subject, saying it's entertaining and fun to goof on. But what he's been saying the whole time has been, what a great, scary movie. Then he finally said, okay, the movie is crap, I guess, after hearing your take on it. Then three minutes later, he was defending it again. Jackass. See, I kind of wish we wouldn't have that effect, though. Well, he changed it back. Okay, good. Yeah. Hold your ground. You should watch the documentary Lost Soul, The Doomed Journey of Richard Stanley's Island of Dr. Moreau. I got to be honest with you, Mike. I I think I've had enough of Dr. Moreau. I don't think I'm going to watch anything else about it. Actually, although that would be interesting. Is that the guy that got fired after four days? Remember how there was like an original director and then they fired him? It's like his dream project and they (laughs) fired him immediately. Yeah. Yeah. Great job on the Malcolm X and Clockwork Orange episodes. Thank you. Seems you did some deep dives with a lot of good info on those. Looking forward to my upcoming Sling Blade request. Well, I know for a fact, because he's emailed me again, that he liked it. Good. Tell Matt thanks for the stickers. One is on my car, the other on my phone. Sweet. Hoping another ass clown will notice and say something. Well, i got to be honest with you, Mike. That's not going to happen. Aren't you in Alaska? Is this the Alaska? <laughs> you in far between. Well, he, the other listener that we know in Alaska, right? Or no, he it... was his friend, but he wasn't in Alaska. Okay, yeah. I'm getting all of these people confused. But... Right. Why don't you move to Minnesota? We got a strong presence there. <laughs> Either Minnesota or Pittsburgh. Yeah. Anyway, hope all is well. Thanks for doing the podcast, Murph. Well, Murph, we appreciate it. We had a lot of fun doing Sling Blade and uh, Doctor Moreau. I'd say too. Yeah, that's actually an interesting approach to an email was having his friend send us the whole thing. And yeah, yeah. I can't guarantee that if you ask us to watch a movie in an email that we'll, be, we'll do it and talk about it, but it was the first time that it was put to us and it seemed funny and random. Possibility, yeah. I just liked the idea because that movie was so random to bring up and just be like, yeah, I guess we'll mention this. Right. 
But yeah, that should be an indication, though, of the freewheeling style for the emails. Feel free to write anything you want, and then we can yeah. respond to it. It's never know what's going to happen. Greatestpod at gmail.com. Questions, comments, concerns, greatestpod at gmail.com. So very quickly before we wrap up, let's move on to physical media spotlight. She's never seen a single Paul Walker movie. That's a huge oh-no-no. She also doesn't care about Blu-ray. She's a monster. I have a special plan for today's segment. I don't know if it's going to work without the visual element, but oh we'll boy. give it a okay. shot. I'm going to do a an unboxing All right. here with a Love it. package that arrived today. I guess there's a little bit of synergy because it's connected to the Ninja Turtles Stinkorama. Oh, yeah. Blu-ray that we mentioned that I also had ordered, and that's part of this box. Did you have a physical media spotlight? I could do one. Why don't you just do it first, because this might take a minute. Okay. Yeah, I watched it a few weeks ago. Is this a new purchase or something? Fairly new. Okay. Yeah. It's a Criterion, but I did watch for the first time in my life on a day that I was homesick from work, David Lynch's Inland Empire. Mm-hmm. Criterion 4K, I believe, right? I don't it, think so. No, no, it is just a Blu-ray. I think it was yeah. shot in a way where it wouldn't it, change the, it to yeah. switch to 4K. It was an experience. It definitely bridges the gap a little bit filmmaking style-wise from where we left off to where we got with Twin Peaks. Right. But you definitely see a lot more of the stylistic crossover from Inland Empire into Twin Peaks. What year did that come out? Was it 06? I thought it was 07, but yeah. Maybe it was 06. I've still never seen it. Of course it's weird as hell, but it was more coherent than I was expecting. There was times where I thought to myself, this thing has got to be like way off the friggin' rails. We love David Lynch, and it's just like a cool one to be available now because it just wasn't. Yeah, I feel bad. I actually have like a Japanese Blu-ray that I had for like forever. And I still didn't watch it. Yeah, yeah. Then I get the Criterion. It's like three hours still long. Still haven't watched yeah. it. That's the thing. I've been putting it off forever, but I was like, I have a day of nothing to do. And so that's if you're like a David time. Lynch fan, Criterion's the way to go right now. You can get Lost Highway and Which that Mall is and Drive 4K. in 4K. Yeah. And then you can get Eraserhead and Inland Empire and Elephant Twin Peaks Man, Firewalk with me. Firewalk with me. All on Blu-ray and Blue Velvet. Yeah. Hopefully they're doing 4Ks of Blue Velvet and Firewalk with me as well. I think that's probably going to happen pretty soon. Lindsay's going to kill me with the amount of rebuys. Well, those are easy to hide on the shelf. Yeah. They look the same once you take <laughs> yeah, the wrapper right. off. And I, I doubt she's going to be examining the wrappers to look at this. <laughs> is this a silver sticker? Is this a 4K now? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Mine is going to be a box, which came today. I already opened it, but I'll open it again. Yeah, come on. The suspense is killing me. Kind of a fun thing to do sometimes is just to buy a bunch of stuff. And if you happen to pick a store that waits to ship everything together, then you have to wait for everything to be released. And then you kind of get these random... I used to be annoyed by that because I wanted everything immediately. But then I was like, well, sometimes if I set these little things out, then I'll get this random package of like six things and it'll be fun. Here we go. The first thing on top is the Stinko Vision. Hell yeah. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Umbrella Blu-ray. A double down on this recommendation. Oh, it's numbered, too. Wow. How about that? 1,750 copies of this. All right. We're in an elite crew. This one might seem a little strange to Matt. Okay. It's a little picture called Wanted. Oh, 4K. Yeah. Wow. 
with James McAvoy, Morgan Freeman, and Angelina Jolie from Shout Factory. I did see that in the theater. I went to a midnight screening of it. Yeah, I saw it in the theater as well. That was the only time I saw it. I remember very much enjoying a few scenes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) No comment. (laughs) This one is a criterion that is now an arrow 4K. Boyhood upgrade in a box. I am sort of a sucker for these arrow box things. It looks cool. Yeah, it's a movie that I've seen once, and I don't know that I'll ever watch again, even though I own multiple copies of it. Yeah. Boyhood from Richard Linklater. Is it a masterpiece? I don't know. People love to say that. It's a cool idea. Yeah. It turned out about as good as you would expect an idea like that to turn out, but right. does that mean it's something I would want to watch all the time? Yeah. I do have the criterion. I haven't watched the movie since the theater. Neither have I. But I but, couldn't resist. Yeah, it's cool. This one is part of the Radiance line, which I guess is doing sort of both UK and American releases. This is a movie called Filler Up with Super. It is an Italian movie, I believe. Looks fun. Don't know anything about it, but I've been trying to buy some of these Radiance releases because they're kind of cool. Sometimes just from the color scheme and the font, I can tell if it's going to be for me, and I'm feeling that with this one. Radiance is sort of a weird mix. They do movies that are a little bit more mainstream, like Miami Blues or The Hot Spot is getting released or Sweet. Welcome to the Dollhouse, the Todd Salons movie. But then they'll also do these ones that are like from Italy and Japan that'll be like world Blu-ray premiere written on it or <laughs> something. And you're like, I've never even heard of this. Yeah. What is this? So they, they're kind of doing a mix of obscure and a little bit more mainstream I thought I'd give that line a whirl, so we'll see how many I get. This is a Shop Factory, Scream Factory limited a dish where they just announce it and it's on their site for however long until it runs out. It's got our girl Margaret Markoff from Black Mama, White Mama, and it. oh, it's yeah. called The Hot Box. It's another women in prison movie. Sweet. This one was written and produced by Jonathan Demme, although he didn't direct it. Okay. But he did direct some of these movies. All right. In the- Roger Corman camp. This is part of New World Pictures, which is Corman's thing. I have seen this before on Tubi. It's it's pretty fun. This one, I am shocked did not get a box like Boyhood, but it is another Arrow 4K of a Criterion movie. Fear and Loathing in Las oh, Vegas. Oh, wow, yeah. You just get the slip, the slip cover, but not the whole the box, whole which is weird. I would have thought this was a definite box type movie. Yeah, especially because I think that's a... A big seller. Maybe less so now that some people have turned on Johnny oh, That's Depp. true. I don't yeah. know. This is a movie that... <laughs> it's popular amongst the Criterion people. I think most people who buy Criterions probably end up getting it. But it's one of those movies that in college or whatever people would just have. And mm-hmm. You would think of it as like this big rewatchable fun thing... And yet, I do think in reality, it's the type of movie that you really only want to watch like every two or three or four years. Yeah. You're not really watching this constantly. No, no. But it is good. I do like Terry Gilliam. He's not like my favorite director, but right. I've always liked this. I read a lot of Hunter S. Thompson's stuff when I was in college, sort of moved on with my life a little bit. But the movie's always fun to yeah. revisit. And there's like some random people that just pop up in this movie oh right? totally i can't remember who but isn't it like toby mcguire probably there's just like random right faces you would know men and women i remember a bit popping up throughout the whole movie 
It's been a few years since I've watched it, though. So Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, new to 4K from Arrow. That is the last of this box. Oh, yeah. Well, good haul. Nice little haul there. The first one I'll probably watch out of that group is the Hot Box, of course, because I'm me. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. Follow the show on Twitter at GreatestPod, and make sure you're subscribed on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, etc. Please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That is still very crucial, and we would still love for you to do so if you haven't already done it. If you'd like a free sticker, you can let us know on Twitter or via email, greatestpod at gmail.com, where you can also negotiate a listener request if you would like to do so. There is some money involved. We have a tip jar on Twitter where you can pay us. We can also work something out via PayPal if Cash App is not working for you or whatever. You can also give us random tips, which no one has done. Yeah, that's all right. But a 5 or 10 for our effort, if you want to, that's on Twitter. Other than that, find us on Letterboxd, Zach1983, and Matt Crosby. We will be back soon, probably within the week. That is the plan right now. It's not locked in, but the next episode will probably be coming shortly, and it will also be a listener request. So we are checking these off, moving down the line. If you have a listener request, though, we are now pretty much into November. So feel free to bring them. There's never going to be a time where I'm going to say no, but I just want everyone to be aware that you will be waiting. That's really all I can say. Thankfully, you track all this stuff. Dude, I came very close to losing track wow. already. Yeah. <laughs> I need to start writing it down as soon as it happens. Yeah, yeah. Because otherwise, who knows? As you start inching closer to turning 40 mm-hmm. and you just want to get fucked up every night <laughs> with drugs and alcohol. Totally. It's, you know, yep. stuff starts slipping through the cracks. Mm-hmm. But we've got a hold on it. Maybe next episode I'll run through every name we have and if you don't hear your name, <laughs> please reach out. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> oh, we'll, we we'll do a one. reminder yeah. of like who I actually have kept track. I think I have everyone, but just in case. All yeah. right, anyway, thank you so much for listening. Ron, thank you for the listener request. It was a fun one. It's always nice when a listener comes to us and gives us something we were going to do anyway. Yeah. That's great. But there is a little bit of intrigue and interest whenever it's like, all right, this is pushing us in a new and different direction. We probably would not have done Star Trek II Wrath of Khan if we were only doing our own picks. There's just no way we would have ever done Uh, that. I'm sure. So this is always an interesting thing to get pushed in a new and strange new worlds as they would say on <laughs> yeah. Star Trek anyway thanks to Ron for that and as I said we'll be back probably within the week with a new episode so thanks for listening we'll talk to you soon
saying to the Rosses over there anyway? Oh, man, I don't know. I, I told them her death takes place in the shadow of new life. She's not really dead if we find a way to remember her. What is that? Star Trek II, Wrath of Khan! <laughs> hey, Kramer and I saw it last night. Spock dies, they wrap him up in a towel, and they shoot him out the bowels of the ship in that big sunglasses case. <laughs> That's a hell of a thing when Spock died. Yeah.